Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. One day, I decided to organize Mama's number-running materials and went through the house gathering everything together into one shallow cardboard box. I was enamored of my own organizational skills and decided to add one final touch. On the side of the box, using bright pink nail polish, I carefully painted in boxy letters, Mama's Numbers. I proudly showed this to my mother, impressed with myself for remembering the possessive apostrophe. She took one look and said, you can't put my business out in the street like that. Looking back, This was the moment when I became consciously aware that I must keep my admiration for my mother's work a private experience. Before, I had known to keep her livelihood a secret, but hadn't yet formed an opinion of, felt any pride in, what Mama actually did for a living. Now I understood that my pride for her also had to be kept secret, as did all the evidence of her work. That's Brigette M. Davis, reading from her memoir, The World According to Fanny Davis. Fanny is Brigette's mom, and Fanny was a numbers runner in Detroit in the 1960s and 1970s. This is how she supported her family in style and provided for their future. And Brigette grew up knowing one thing for sure. Never, ever was she to breathe a word to a soul about what her mama did for a living. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. At the time I was experiencing it, I thought it was normal, my childhood, because there were many rituals that happened regularly. I could listen to my mother on the phone every day, taking her customers' bets, and it was like a daytime lullaby. I loved it. It didn't seem odd to me at all to hear this recitation of numbers, right, by her. And then every evening, we were all going to wait to hear what the day's winning numbers were. And that's how it worked if you were in a household where your parent, in my case, my mom, was actually a numbers runner. It was simply a precursor to the lottery, and it existed 
decades before the state got around to taking it over. So that was the way that you lived in that kind of household. And I thought, in an odd way, the structure was comforting because I knew what to count on. Let's go all the way back, literally, though, to Detroit, the house. Here we were in this home that was a colonial four-bedroom brick house. It was very traditional looking and for us, extremely spacious. There were seven of us and all the sisters shared a room. My brother had his own room and then there was my parents' room. So we all had our space. And what I loved about it as a child is that it really did have this incredibly fascinating addict where I could go up and just play and imagine all kinds of things. I was, as many writers, as a child, I was very caught up in my own imagination. (laughs) I could spend hours in my own head. And the attic was a great place to do that because I could look out that window and see everything in front of me, the entire goings-on of the street. But the basement was the same way. It was this gorgeous space that, it turns out, my mother had... uh, She renovated it, so it became like a lounge. And it was the 60s, so there was wood paneling. (laughs) There was a wraparound bar that was, you know, necessary back then. And because I had all these siblings who were teenagers, there were what I thought was parties every night. When I look back, it couldn't have been every night. But in my memory, it was. It was all of my siblings' friends coming in the side door and running down the steps and listening to lots of Motown. You know, we were in Detroit, so Motown was our soundtrack. And those records were spinning regularly, constantly. And I remember laughter and people playing cards and smoke and, you know, this sort of sense that it was a social hub. So that was happening. And at the same time, my mother was also inviting lots of people into the home because she was a magnet for people. They loved being around her. She really was what we call a pillar of the community, but no one used that term. She was just Fanny, Miss Fanny, and her doors were open. So people who were really wanting to come over and have a meal knew they could do that at Fanny's house. If they needed advice, they could come to her. If, you know, a young woman was struggling in her marriage and things were a little crazy, my mother would say, why don't you stay here a few days until things cool off? So there were always these people in the house. My sister used to call it Grand Central Station. The doorbell was always ringing. The doors were swinging open. The phone was going off all the time. Describe Fanny for me. I mean, what did she look like? What did she wear? What was her style? What did her voice sound like? So my mom was really pretty. I often say that everyone thinks their mother is beautiful, but mine really was. (laughs) And we would say it. The girls would say, Mama's prettier than any of us. You know, she got the looks. (laughs) But she wasn't in any way arrogant or vain. She was just self-assured. And she was pretty simple in her style, in the sense that my mom really only wore makeup if she was going somewhere special. She wasn't someone to wear makeup. She had this beautiful, naturally long, thick hair, which some days she would comb and some days she wouldn't. (laughs) And the days she didn't want to comb her hair, she'd put an Hermes scarf around it and cover it up. 
she didn't shy away from luxurious things. She loved minks and she liked beautiful leather purses before it was a thing. She also liked to lounge around the house in these gorgeous, I call them ensembles, but they were basically beautiful gowns and matching robes. And she had an array of them. And they were so pretty. My favorite was just lace trimmed with this ribbon woven through it. Gorgeous, you know, white with pink trim. Yeah, sitting there looking lovely, but taking care of business. Bridgette and her family lived in the heart of Detroit. Fanny bought the house in 1961 from a man named Mr. Prince during a time of white flight. Whites were leaving the city in droves, and they were selling their homes to blacks. So this was a neighborhood called Russell Woods, upscale, but not as Tony as Gross Point, where the auto magnates lived. In the early 1960s, the auto industry in Detroit was doing what it was supposed to do, creating a solid middle class. And much of that middle class was black, backed by strong unions and able to buy their own homes. Then, as the 60s progressed and the civil rights movement really got afoot, um, you could see, you could feel the changes. I was just a child, but I could feel this thing that was rumbling, um, this, these tensions that I couldn't have given a name to, but they were there, these racial tensions happening in the city. And of course, it all combusted in 1967. 1968? 1968. <laughs> With the race riots, as they've called them in the media. Detroiters call it the uprising or the Great Rebellion. But that was the moment when um, things really, as in many other cities, urban centers in the city, in the country, uh, things really came to a head. And there were riots that lasted across five days. And you have memories of this. I have Even definitely you were, memories. You were a little kid. I was a kid, but I definitely remember it. It was 67, forgive me. You know, King was assassinated in 68. And the rise were 67, and those years collapsed for me because they were both traumatic. And I was seven and eight, and I remember them almost as though they merge in my mind. One long year of just trauma. Yeah. 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 That's what trauma does. Yeah. We're going to pause for a moment. Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. As communities around the world confront new challenges, including social distancing and school closures, many of us are looking for new ways to relax and feel connected to the world, to ourselves, to one another. Whether that means getting lost in a historical story, a memoir, a work of provocative nonfiction, or a juicy celebrity biography, I know that stories help. Stories pierce our solitude and make us feel less alone. Audiobooks are such an intimate form. It's why I love them. We can just close our eyes, take a break from Zoom, and get swept away. I listen to Audible originals, audiobooks, guided wellness programs, even comedy, as I'm walking my dog or folding my laundry, or behind the wheel of my car. Thousands of titles right at our fingertips. That's such a gift, at any time, but particularly during these times. Start your 30-day trial with Audible and get one audiobook, plus access to the all-new Plus Catalog for free by visiting audible.com slash Danny or by texting Danny to 500-500. What's it like to drive the Volvo XC90 plug-in hybrid? 
thrill of a 400 horsepower T8 twin engine. The joy of impromptu road trips. And the serenity of electric power in pure eco mode. Visit a DMV Volvo retailer today to experience the XC90 Recharge Plug-in Hybrid for yourself. So there's a story about the way Fanny was able to buy that house from Mr. Prince, a story that Brigitte really only learned when she began to do research for her book. It says something about the way our parents present our lives to us and the way, as children, we don't tend to question the stories we receive. In Brigitte's case, all her life, what she knew was that her mother bought their beautiful family home on contract, as it was called. She essentially went into this arrangement one-on-one with the seller, Mr. Prince, and didn't involve a bank, and essentially bought it from him that way, so that she paid him a mortgage every month, paid on the mortgage, and when she was done paying for it, it was hers. And it seemed to me that she was making that choice because she had this unorthodox profession. I always thought, well into my adulthood, that, well, she couldn't show a pay stub. My dad wasn't able to work. He was disabled. So she had to figure out this creative way to buy a home. It was only years later, while working on this book, that I found out that, in fact, because she was a quote-unquote Negro woman, she wasn't allowed to get a mortgage in the ways that most Americans can because there was this thing called redlining, And it it enabled the um, Federal Housing Authority to impose these boundaries around so-called high-risk communities and neighborhoods. What made it high-risk? If one Black family lived in that community, it was high-risk. So what did that mean? They wouldn't insure the loans that banks were lending. So banks could say, we're not lending to you because we can't get this loan insured by the FHA. It's too risky. And so it trickled throughout the real estate community, right? Realtors wouldn't show homes just to blacks in certain communities or sell their homes to them, sell certain homes to them. And so imagine having the means but not being able to buy a house only because of the color of your skin. You know, this thing that is the symbol of your American dream. It really is your foothold into the middle class. And so that infuriated me when I learned it. Never did I hear my mother talk about it that way or in that context. But I have to tell you, it's pretty predatory because it is essentially like renting your home. So you have all the risk of renting and none of the the benefits of owning. You put a huge deposit down, 30%, and you never actually build equity in the home. The seller continues to hold the title. And you don't get the deed to the property until you've completely paid for it. Um, And so if you, for instance, can't make one payment, if you're late one month, the seller can take the house back. So in fact, Fanny was creating this, there there was tremendous risk in what she was doing. It was the only thing she could do to buy a house. But there was this tremendous risk and yet you and your siblings didn't know it. We didn't right? know it. It was 
it was there somewhere, you know, thrumming in the underbelly of it all. Yeah. I suspect my older siblings understood more because they were older. Now, what I felt was Mr. Prince coming to our home every month to collect his mortgage payment. And I look back on that and I thought, did he not trust her to send him a check, (laughs) you know? Or he was still checking on his investment in a way? Well, there you go. There's that possibility too. And I, I didn't know why, but I just felt every month that he came that I was almost holding my breath until he left to to be able to say, okay, everything's all right. It was serious business. Fanny had bought this home in a risky manner, and she had to trust that Mr. Prince would do right by her. On top of this, her livelihood was risky. When it came to her income, there were no guarantees. And she didn't have the space to miss a single payment, or she could lose everything. Describe what running the numbers is for the uninitiated. Running the numbers is a, a way of being engaged in this entirely underground but sprawling lottery business that proliferated throughout much of the country underneath the radar. And it generated millions of dollars in many cities throughout the country. It was literally exactly like today's lottery, in that today you can go and play a lottery at any corner bodega, and you can say, here's three digits I want to play, nine, five, two, and I want to play them for a dollar. And if those numbers come out, it's all electronic now, so they just randomly choose those numbers. If the number comes out, you could win $500 because the payoff is 500 to one. Here's how it worked back then. The winning numbers were arrived at using a convoluted system involving the racing forms from certain racetracks, like the fairgrounds in New Orleans or Aqueduct in New York. Once the winning numbers were determined, someone high up in Detroit's racket received it through a long-distance call from the numbers service boss in Chicago. The winning numbers hit the streets and spread by word of mouth. Numbers men told their bankers, who told their bookers, who told their customers, who told other customers, and so on. One of Brigitte's jobs was to call her mother's customers and give them the winning combination. That system, which by the way, in New York they call numbers, (laughs) is exactly what my mom was doing back in Detroit as a numbers runner. She and many, many others were uh, basically engaged in and sort of unofficial, I like to call it an informal lottery system. You know, there was a precursor to even the numbers. There was a game called Policy that was completely invented by and run by whites. And it proliferated throughout the country prior to this new game that was introduced by one man in Harlem who came up with an elegant system, a lot less complicated than what had come before it. So this black man creates the numbers, and it thrives in Harlem, and it moves across the country. And yes, within a very short amount of time, others wanted in, because it generated millions of dollars. We saw it as this communal business that was turning dollars over in the community many times, right? And providing all of these legitimate services through that money. Um, So 
It's like I knew that it was, I now know that it was happening everywhere and in many communities. Before they moved to Detroit, before the numbers running began, Bridgette's parents, like millions of other blacks, migrated north as part of the second wave of the Great Migration. This was the mid-1950s, and at that point, they had three small children. When they arrived in Detroit from Nashville, Bridgette's father thought he'd find work in the factories, which he did, but it was difficult, inconsistent. Eventually, he became disabled and couldn't work regularly. So what was Fanny to do? My mom has these young children. She's left her home. You know, all they've ever known was Nashville, where she, her family had been for generations. My mom's grandfather was born into slavery in Nashville. That's how far back their roots went. So she's in this new northern city, tough place. The discrimination has its own flavor, and she's not prepared for it. And she checks out the landscape and realizes that 75% of Detroit's black women are either doing day work, which means, you know, cleaning white women's homes, or they are in really low-rung jobs in these factories, making less than the men, or they're cleaning offices at night. And as she used to say, it seemed risky to her to not figure out something else, because the idea of leaving her children at home while she took one of these jobs for very low pay and letting them raise themselves was not an option. And so she started looking for something else to do. And she didn't have to look that far, actually, because my mom was pretty observant. She was a quick study. And everywhere around her, her neighbors were playing the numbers, you know, betting their 50 cents, their quarter, their dollar, not a lot of money. But she saw that it was a brisk business. So as a child, you know your mom is running numbers. Yes. And it's not remotely hidden from you or your siblings. It's, it seems like it's almost sort of command central of the home. You mm-hmm. know, she's there and, and this is her job and she's not remotely ashamed of it. No. Um, none of you are. No. But you also know that it must be kept a secret. Yes. I've been asked, how is it that your mother never got caught? And I don't have an actual answer for that. I think she was lucky. But also my mother was really cautious and really smart. And I think there were a few things that she did to really mitigate, you know, the risk of exposure. And one of them was my mother only had customers through word of mouth. So she'd only take your business if you came highly recommended. There was that. And even though we had a household that felt like Grand Central Station, my mother was actually careful about who came into the house. So there was that piece as well. And also, she wasn't flashy. She loved beautiful things, but she was understated. I think that was really important, too. And then she had to take some very practical measures. My mother had a lovely, I say it's lovely because I thought it was, safe that she kept in her bedroom closet. It was a metal safe with a combination lock. And that's where she kept the day's proceeds. That's where she kept the business, the cash. It was all in that combination lock in her bedroom closet. She also carried a pistol in her purse. And there was another one that remained in the house in the linen closet underneath the eyelet-trimmed tablecloths and the lace napkins. And 
we all knew it was there and we understood it. We actually felt safer knowing it was there because my mom was not only worried about exposure and risk that could lead to arrest, she also had to worry about being in a cash business and and it getting out that, that maybe there's a lot of cash in Fanny's house. And so there was that precaution as well. You know, she was really constantly trying to safeguard against a lot of different things. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. When was the last time you watched your home movies? Do you have a VCR anymore? What about a film projector? With technology constantly changing, most families don't have a way to enjoy their recorded memories, trapped on VHS, camcorder tapes, film reels, and photos. That's why we created Legacy Box over a decade ago. Legacy Box is an affordable mailed-in kit to have your aging media digitized to DVD, thumb drive, or the cloud. Our trained technicians digitize everything by hand right here in the U.S. Imagine being able to easily relive weddings, graduations, baby's first steps, and more. Get started future-proofing your memories today so you can gather the whole family together and begin the trip down memory lane. Plus, for a limited time, we're offering 40% off. Visit LegacyBox.com album to get an exclusive 40% off. Buy today to take advantage of this incredible offer and send in when you're ready. Go to LegacyBox.com album to save 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash album. Brashak grows up in a mixed-race neighborhood and goes to a mixed school. She lives on a street that's around the corner from Diana Ross and the Supremes. They've all just begun to rise to stardom, and all three of the Supremes decide to buy homes on the same block. Diana Ross gets the big corner home. So it's a neighborhood of contrasts and also of tensions simmering beneath the surface. I was in first grade, and I was just in my class showing my teacher an assignment. And she said to me, literally out of nowhere, you sure do have a lot of shoes. And the thing that was striking is that the week before, she had asked me what my father did for a living. I'm six years old. I said the truth. I said he doesn't work, (laughs) which, because by then, he really had become disabled. And... Then she said, well, what does your mother do? Oh, my goodness. Um, I told her I didn't know, (laughs) which wasn't true. But I knew enough to not tell her the truth. But I was nervous. So when she mentioned these shoes the next week, you know, you know, even as a child, you have a sense of things. Something's not right here. I thought, all right, just nod, and you don't know what else to do. Just nod when she tells you that. And then she really surprised me and said, before you sit down, I want you to name every pair of shoes you have. And, you know, trying to be a good girl, I thought, well, this is a test, and I don't want to get it wrong. I'm so anxious. Let me just really try to picture all the shoes that line my closet shelf. And I started listing them, 
all of them, the black and white polka dotted ones with the bow tie and the buckled ruby red ones, you know. And I managed to come up with, I recall, 10 pairs. That teacher, Miss Miller, said to me, what? 10 pairs is an awful lot. And then she just told me to take my seat. But I could hear that thing in her voice. I didn't know what to call it then, but it was totally disdain, you know. I thought that was it. And the next day, she called me back to her desk. And she said to me, you did not tell me you had white shoes. I looked down at my feet, and sure enough, I was wearing a pair of white shoes that I had forgotten to mention. And I thought, I've been caught in a lie. I thought, I have so disappointed my teacher, and I hope I'm not in trouble. I was really worried. And that's why I went home and told my mother what happened. I just thought, I have to let her know. And I confessed. That's what it felt like. I was confessing that I forgot to tell Miss Miller about the 11th pair of shoes. My mom, I had never seen her get this angry. I mean, I mean, her eyes flashed with anger like I had never seen. And I thought, I'm about to get a spanking. <laughs> but that's not what happened. She looked at me and said, that's none of her damn business. Who does she think she is? So I'm, I'm relieved that I'm not in trouble. But then she said to me, Get your coat, let's go. Oh, I thought, please, God, I hope we're not going back to school to confront Miss Miller. But we weren't. My mom put me in the car and drove me to Saks Fifth Avenue and then took me to the children's shoe department and pointed to the most beautiful pair of like yellow patent leather shoes that I'd ever seen in my life. She pointed to them and said, those are pretty. And then she bought them for me. She pulled out a $100 bill and paid for those shoes. And I still remember how the saleswoman looked at me and her. That saleswoman looked at my mom the way that, that Miss Miller had looked at me. My mom didn't seem to even notice. She just said to me, you're going to wear these to school tomorrow. And you better tell that damn teacher of yours that you actually have a dozen pair of shoes. You hear me? So what could I do? I did what I was told. And as nervous as I was, I walked up to Miss Miller's desk. I had chosen a beautiful little yellow knit dress to match the shoes. And I said, Miss Miller, I have 12 pairs of shoes. Oh, my God. She looked down at my feet. She looked at my face with those blue eyes. And she told me to sit down. And you know she never said another word to me ever again the rest of the school year. How did that feel to you? I mean, you're six years old. You're in first grade. You Again, something you don't have language for, right? You right. recognize disdain, but you, right. you know, you don't have that word. Um, you recognize it in the saleswomen at Saks. For your mother, you don't have that word. But what your mother does is models for you um, dignity. Yes, that's it. Yeah. If she had played that any other way, you know, I think about that now because it still stuck with me. Look how it has stuck with me my whole life. I still remember, as much as I tell people that story, I can recall how I felt as a six-year-old. It was traumatizing. And if my mother had, you know, handled it any other way, said, well, just ignore her or 
well, you don't have to wear all your shoes to school. If she had done any of those things, I think the shame would have come rushing down onto me. All that shame that she had kept at bay, you know, I think it would have really been really a very different outcome. Um, So I'm grateful that she had the wherewithal to handle it that way because I knew right then that no one could tell me what I was entitled to. That was the thing that I quickly grasped from that situation. There are stories that stay with us and stories that we need to rediscover and re-understand as adults once our childhoods become clearer to us, especially when our childhoods have involved a secret. Brigitte is already deep into her adult life. She's in her 50s, a journalist, a professor, a wife, and a mom. Before this secret she has kept her whole life starts to sit less comfortably within her. Fanny's gone. The risks of what she did are long past. And yet, still the secret remains. Why? I was so used to not telling. It was all I ever knew. I inherited that way of life that I never struggled with the idea of wanting to tell, of, oh, oops, I'm going to share this and I shouldn't. I never did. It was incredible because my best friend since fourth grade, Diane, um, was uh, being interviewed by me as I was researching the book, and now we're in our 50s. And she thought I just wanted to talk about my mom. And she thought, well, that's a great subject because we all loved your mother and we all have stories of how she helped us. So yeah, I'd love to talk to her, talk to you about her. And then my final question to her was, did you know that my mom had this whole business? And, and she was like, what are you talking about? What? It's like, that's when I realized, wow, I really did keep this secret pretty well. And that we all did, and that my mother did. And, you know, I could see it in my friend's face. She was like, wait a minute, I I did know your mom was running something. I just didn't know what. Like, I could tell she was in charge. I just didn't know what she was in charge of. So it was both a revelation, but not surprising. But that was my way of understanding for myself that, yes, we did keep that secret. Solidly kept it. Um, across many years. But here's the thing I came to learn, too. Just because it wasn't a dark, shameful secret didn't mean it wasn't weighing on me. It was. Because a secret morphs. It ultimately becomes something that attaches shame to itself, to itself, right? It's like I call shame a secret's country cousin because they're not far from one another, inevitably. And in my case, I started feeling bad about not telling. I started thinking, I'm acting like I'm ashamed of my mother because I'm not telling anyone. And that felt awful. At what point did you start feeling that way? It really became acute once I had a child. And once my son got older and actually asked me one day when he was like 10 years old. This was nine years ago. And he very innocently looked at a photo of my mom and said, what was she like? I managed to answer him. I said, oh, she was amazing. But in my heart, I thought, Jesus, what have you done? You know, you have really now reached, gone into a territory that's unhealthy. 
You kept the secret longer than you had to. Why are you still keeping the secret? Now your own children don't know who their grandmother is, what she did, what she accomplished. Then I thought, get it together. Your mom died when you were 32? Yes. Uh, When were your children born? So my son was born seven years later. Okay, so your mom died before you had kids. Right. Right, so they never knew her. They never knew her. I, as an aside, thought maybe I'll never have children. Um, I totally waited till the last possible moment because I thought, you know, I thought it was because I could never be the kind of mother I had. And I wonder now, you know, was that whole business of the secret implicated in there somehow? I don't know how, but maybe. Something about children requires revelation. And maybe I was hesitant about that, too. I don't know. But I I definitely felt an urgency once he was asking about her. That was the trigger. What has it been like for you after a lifetime of that being so embedded as a secret, not only to have it stop being a secret um, to your children or to your inner circle, but um, really shining a light on Fanny and on everything that had been kind of kept in the dark, kept quiet. What's that been like for you personally and emotionally and psychologically? It is incredible. It's life-changing. I can't put it any other way. It's a relief. It's such a relief, and it's so validating. All that time, I was stopping a lot from happening, from my children knowing who she was, from myself being able to brag about her, from all these people who loved her and had been touched by her. They weren't really able to talk about her. It's as though I gave everyone permission. And then I gave permission to all these people who didn't know Fanny, but had similar stories. It dawned on me I hadn't thought about it. Everyone was keeping the number secret. Well, one of the things about secrets, too, is the way that they they beget secrets, that beget secrets, that beget yes. secrets. And so everybody is walking around holding some version of a secret, and they think that they're the only one. Right. Right. That's it. I thought that. I thought <laughs> that I, um, I didn't have any friends who had you know, mothers doing what my mom did. So it felt like I was the only one. But of course, now, I'm not kidding. Almost everyone I talk to wants to tell me an anecdote. Not just about, I had a friend who was in the numbers, or I remember that family down the street, or my uncle was doing that. But people who want to tell me about their grandfather who bet on horses, or, you know, the history of bootlegging in their family, or, you know, Like, that, to me, is the quintessential American story. It's something. It's really something. Here's Bridget reading a passage from The World According to Fanny Davis, in which the love of this remarkable daughter for her remarkable mother shines through as a family secret finally blossoms into the light of day. My mother gave us a good life at great expense. I thought I knew her skills as a number runner, 
that she used her facility with numbers, good judge of character, winning personality, and dose of good luck to build and maintain her business for three decades. But I had no idea just how much of a gambler she was, or the kind of psychological work it took to keep our world afloat. Scariest of all is this. The only way for me to tell Mama's story is to defy her by running my mouth. Many thanks to my guest, Brigitte M. Davis. She is the author of The World According to Fanny Davis, and you can find out more about Brigitte at brigettedavis.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, Lowell Berlanti is the audio engineer, and Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share with us, get in touch at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com danny or text danny to 500-500 to get started. You know how they say history repeats itself? We've allowed ourselves to be so divided. No one can disagree anymore without hating. On the Frost Tapes podcast, we'll be sharing interviews from legendary TV host David Frost, who sat down with some of the most influential people of the 60s and 70s, a time of great upheaval in America, a time that feels so much like today. I did not elect Nixon, but I'm a black American, and I know something about the crime of silence. It's funny, isn't it, that there aren't any women in the executive positions of this company. I think it's really sort of uh, involves the national purpose, almost the soul of the country. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. You won't find these tapes anywhere else. So join me, Wilfred Frost, as we turn back the clock on the Frost Tapes. Listen to the Frost Tapes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.